This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to our sermon text this morning. Matthew 22, verses 41 through 46. Hear the Word of God. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, Son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Let's pray. Father, open to us your word. We pray, O oh God, for the help of your spirit to, to lead us into an appreciation and understanding of the truth. That even as David was in the spirit, we would be in the spirit, filled by your spirit, led by your spirit. For these things are spiritually discerned if we are to understand them to salvation and to growth in grace. And so, Father, we ask this in Jesus' name and for your glory and for our well-being. Amen. Perhaps you've noticed that when the name Jesus comes up, very often someone tries to change the subject, especially if you're talking to someone about Jesus. Now, it's, it's a curious phenomenon that you can talk about spirituality and you can talk about God and there's a certain level of relaxation. People are somewhat comfortable talking about spirituality and about God. Because those things tend to be left at a vague, nebulous, undefined level. But once mentioned Jesus, and you've become far more specific, far more clear-cut, we start to know what it is we're talking about, and people will get uncomfortable. And they'll want to change the subject. Not necessarily to something outside of religion. They'll say something like, you're Presbyterian, right? You believe in predestination. Or, well, you know, what do you think about baptism? Some people baptize infants. Other people say that's wrong. What do you think? Obviously, you know, where you are, you baptize babies. Why is that? Do you really think there is going to be a midweek rapture? Anything but Jesus. But Jesus is what's most important. Not that those other matters aren't important. They aren't worth knowing about. It's not that they're not worth knowing about, not worth discussing. 
Not worth studying to see what the scriptures say about them. But ultimately, they're secondary compared to Jesus. To who he is. To what he came to do. And to what that means for all of us today. You know, Jesus himself experiences that phenomenon in John chapter 4 where he's talking with the woman at the well. He starts talking to her about herself and about the number of husbands that she has had and the fact she's living with a man now that she's not married to. And the woman does what people have done ever since. You know, you Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem. We say we should worship in Samaria. You're a prophet. What do you think? Well, Jesus briefly addresses that, but then goes back to the main subject, which has to do with himself, with who he is. And she says, well, I know, I know when the Messiah comes, he'll explain all these things to us. And Jesus said, I who am speaking to you am he. Goes back to Jesus, comes back to him. Same thing is taking place right here in the passages that we've looked at over the last few weeks. People have come to Jesus uh, with the motivation of testing him, of entrapping him, trying to trip him up, trying to discredit him. And as we've seen, Jesus deftly answers their questions in a way that silences them and in a way that does not incriminate himself and in a way that further reveals and explains biblical truth. Started out with some people who came to Jesus and wanted to talk about our responsibilities to the government. And here we are, the Jewish people, subjugated by Rome, under this foreign power, this pagan empire. Is it right, is it proper for us to pay taxes to them? Tricky question, because there were different opinions. And depending on which way Jesus went, he would inevitably alienate one group or one entity or another. And Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You know, as Christians, we do have an obligation to the civil government. We are in the world, maybe not of the world, but we are in the world. And we use money that says United States of America on it. And we owe the government uh, honor, uh, owe them our prayers. We have a responsibility. And so Jesus answers that question, an important question. What's the role of the Christian where the government is concerned? And others come to Jesus and say, you know, they have, they have this trick question. You know, a woman's been married a lot and her husband's die and she's been married seven times. Now, in the resurrection, actually, whose husband will she be? question of what happens after we die. Is there a resurrection? What's going to, to be the, 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 the nature of that condition, that estate? And Jesus addresses that. He answers their question. He challenges their lack of belief in the resurrection. Another important question, what's going to happen after, what, what happens after death? And then some people come up to Jesus. They have another important question. Well, what's, what's the greatest commandment in all of the Bible? What's the most important thing? And Jesus just answers them. Uh, the, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. And he says there's a second that's like it, and that is to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, the two commandments that sum up the, the rest of the Bible is to love God with all of our being, 
to love our neighbor, those around us, as we would love ourselves. In other words, to do for them those things that would help them, even as we would take care of ourselves. But now, Jesus has a question for them. As it says here, some of the Pharisees still there, still gathered around. And the Pharisees were opposed to Jesus, generally, not every one of them, but as a group, there was a, a certain and growing level of antagonism toward Christ. And Jesus says, well, now I have a question for you. And you'll notice that the question Jesus asks gets them away from important subjects, but secondary subjects, back to the main question. Who is Jesus? All of the other things they've been talking about were important, but they're not the main thing. And once again, Jesus draws their attention back. What do you think about the Christ? And that is a question that reverberates on the page of Scripture down to the present day and forces itself upon us here in our day, in our time, as the most important consideration we can think about. What do you think about the Christ? Now, Jesus has done this before. The woman at the well we mentioned just a few chapters earlier in chapter 16. It says, Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, what do people say or who do people say the Son of Man is? See, Jesus presses this question on them. He says, what are people saying about who I am? They say, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. And then he puts his disciples on the hook. Who do you say that I am? And, of course, Peter steps forward and says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus affirms him for that answer. If it were not true, it would be blasphemous. Being true, Jesus commends him because the Father has revealed that to him and that he has that perception. Well, the first thing we need to think about here is we look at this question, what do you think about the Christ? Who is Jesus? Is the importance of the question, the importance of Jesus. He raises the question here and he puts it in a way designed to make the Pharisees think. He starts out with something they know. Whose son is he? Now, remember the word Christ is the Greek form or Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Christ is not technically his name, it is his title. It's a word that has to do with anointing, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And so Jesus says, whose son is he? Forces this question upon them, and they say to him, the son of David. There are a lot of things that go on in your life, a lot of questions you want to answer. You know, how am I going to pay my mortgage? Am I going to lose my house? Am I going to lose my job? What's going to happen to my children? Uh, Do I take another job? Should I do something else? Should we move? Should we sell our house and buy a different one? Um, All kinds of questions, challenges, decisions that confront us during 
the week. But there's none more important than this question. What do you think about the Christ? And Jesus asks, whose son is he? And the Pharisees answer quickly, the son of David. That was an easy one, Jesus. Well, Jesus is just setting them up. He's getting them thinking. Let's get away from thinking about the government and the Romans. Let's get away from thinking even about the resurrection. Let's get away from thinking about you know, the scriptures and what the most important commandment we find in them is. And let's go back to talking about Jesus. Because you see, all of those other questions in life, even significant religious questions, certainly practical questions about our daily lives, pale in con- comparison to this question, what do you think about the Christ? So looking at the importance of Jesus. And they said to him, the son of David. Well, that was common knowledge. Everybody knew that, that, that the Messiah would be the son of David. And Jesus knew what they meant by that. We've discussed before that general conception that the Messiah would come, a descendant of David. After all, Second uh, Samuel 7, you know, the Lord promises that David would have a dynasty that would not end, that he would always have a descendant on the throne of Israel. They understood that. They knew that passage. And so they were expecting a son of David, one of his line, a royal leader who would arise and who would lead Israel much as David had done in military victory, particularly military victory in delivering Israel from the oppression of Rome. Easy question, Jesus. Whose son is the Messiah? Well, he's the son of David. But, you know, there are a lot of people like that today who answer that question, who is Jesus? Well, you know, he's the son of God. He died on the cross for sinners. Or he was a good man. He was an influential figure in history. He's a great teacher. Well, as uh, C.S. Lewis said last night, or a reasonable facsimile thereof. And by the way, if you weren't here last night, you missed an absolute treat. That was magnificent. Uh, as he, as C.S. Lewis points out, that to say nice things about Jesus, even things like, well, he's Elijah, he's John the Baptist, he's Jeremiah, is merely to patronize him. Because Jesus himself claims far more than that about himself. And if he's wrong about those things, how can you say he's a good teacher? How can you say he's a great man if he's that deluded about himself? Or if he's deliberately deceiving people? Because Jesus claimed far more than that. But you see, the Pharisees gave the party line. He's the son of David. And so many people today answer the question, what do you say about Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, you know, he... He lived, he died on a cross, he was a great man, a lot of good moral teaching. Jesus would not recognize that Jesus, if that's all he is. The importance of that question. We must answer it, and we must answer it biblically. We must answer it correctly and not give the stock cultural answers that so many people today give and are just as lost in their sins as they can, as they can be. But that leads us then to the second thing, not just the importance of Jesus and who he is, but the deity, the deity of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus. Because this is where Jesus turns the tables on them. The first question, yes, it was an easy one, but it was just to set them up. Because Jesus then says in verse 43, 
How is it then, that being true, how is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him, the Messiah, Lord? Where does he do that, Jesus? Well, in Psalm 110, verse 1, which is quoted here before us, the Lord, Yahweh, God, said to my Lord, my master. Now remember, it's David speaking. David is the king. David is the political, military, spiritual leader of Israel. None higher. And the Messiah is to be his son. Now, understanding family relationships, the son is never higher in stature, higher in esteem, higher in standing than his father. Who is the Messiah? He's the son of David, the descendant son used more generally, the descendant of David. He comes from David. And so Jesus raises the question, how can David say to his son, my Lord, my master? So Jesus is posing this, this logical conundrum or difficulty. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. It's worth noting a couple of things here. One, that psalm begins a psalm of David. And whether that ascription at the beginning was original or not, it's certainly true. Because Jesus himself takes that psalm as being written by David. He also takes that psalm as being Holy Scripture because David said that in the Spirit, led by, inspired by, superintended by the Holy Spirit. So this word, not only the word of David, it's the word of God, it's the Scriptures. The Lord said to my Lord, God said to my Master, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, in its context, and, and as, it's, as it reads here, that's a verse that speaks about the Messiah's rule. To have your enemies under your feet means to subjugate them, to subdue them. In Joshua chapter 10, as Joshua has defeated kings in the land of Canaan, they're brought and they're placed down in Joshua, and the leaders place their feet on their necks, symbolically demonstrating their conquest, their defeat, their submission. And what Psalm 110 verse 1 says is that the Messiah is at the right hand of God and he will reign there until every one of his enemies has been subdued. It's not without reason that that verse is the most quoted verse in the Old Testament in the New. It's on the lips of Peter on the day of Pentecost as he's preaching. He ends his sermon with reference to that. And after quoting that verse, says, The Lord has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. He is now at the right hand of the Father. He is reigning, and this gospel will go forward, and he will return on the day of judgment. And everyone will bow before him. Everyone will be subdued before him. Many of us, by his grace, willingly bowing to him, willingly submitting to him. Others, forcibly so, uh, having to acknowledge, having to bow, acknowledge that he is the king, that he is the victor, however grudgingly it might be, yet they will have to acknowledge that Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Now, as Jesus quotes the verse, that's there. But his point is, how does Jesus refer, or how does David, King David, refer to his son, his descendant, the Messiah, as Lord? Unless there's something much more to the Messiah than just being a descendant of David. You know, it's interesting as you study Matthew, and we've, we've covered all of these now at one point or another in our study of Matthew's gospel, how diligent Matthew is to demonstrate that Jesus is the son of David. This little Bible drill. Turn back to Matthew 1.1, very first verse of this gospel. Matthew, who is writing primarily with Jews in mind to convince them that Jesus is the Christ, their Messiah, in Matthew 1.1, refers to the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. And then again in chapter 9, verse 27, Jesus passed on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Curious that the enlightened religious leaders couldn't see it, but these two blind men could see it, that he was the son of David. And they're not merely referring to descent. They're referring to him as Messiah. Chapter 12, verse 23. A demon-oppressed man is is healed. The, The Lord casts out this demon. The people were amazed, and they said, Can this be the son of David? In other words, is this man possibly the Messiah? Uh, Chapter 15, verse 22. Again, a woman whose daughter is oppressed by a demon, she comes out to Jesus and says, Have mercy on me, O Lord, O Son of David. Chapter 20, verse 30. Again, blind men. They're in Jericho, outside Jericho, and they cry out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And again, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And then 21, verse 9, here we're getting into more recent passages with the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And as Jesus is entering the city, the people cry out, Hosanna to the son of David. And of course, the next day, the children are there gathered in the temple, and they're they're still living the moment. The children are still crying out, Hosanna to the son of David. And it not only galls the Pharisees that they're saying this, but that Jesus allows them to say this. And then here, chapter 22. By their own lips, who is the Messiah? Whose whose son is the Christ? They say the son of David. The seventh time that expression occurs in his gospel referring directly or indirectly to Jesus. Seven times. you think that's an accident? Knowing the proclivity in the Bible for the word seven as a, as a, word, as a number of perfection or completion of the fullness. Matthew makes these references to Jesus, the son of David. And then Jesus pulls the hard question on them. Verse 45, if then David calls him Lord... How is he, his son? What is he pointing out? He's pointing out to these Pharisees that they need to rethink 
their understanding of the Messiah. Yes, he is the son of David. But how can David call his own son master? Normally that wouldn't be the case, unless his own son was not just his descendant, but someone far greater, far more magnificent, far more powerful, far more regal than just a descendant of David. He's trying to get them to think that their conception of Jesus is not grand enough, that the conception of the Messiah is is too small. How can David call him Lord? He's just his son. You know, the problem is we need to make sure that our thinking about Jesus accords with the Bible. That he is the son of David, but he's also the son of God. That he's far more. And his, his messiahship, the ministry that he would do, the work he would accomplish was something at the same time smaller and grander than anything the Pharisees could conceive. Smaller in that Jesus didn't come in to lead some revolt against Rome. His ministry consisted not of the sword of steel, but of the sword of the word, teaching, and the power of God in miracles. But something far grander than they could possibly conceive. A kingdom that would last until and is still growing in our present day. That would involve far, far more people than just Israel. It would involve far more than just some real estate on the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea. But the world something far greater. And not just the defeat of Rome, but the defeat of Satan, the defeat of hell, the defeat of sin at the cross. They needed to expand their understanding. They needed to have a more accurate understanding of the Messiah. And Jesus is pointing this out to them. The importance of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, and finally the response. Look at the response that Jesus gets. Verse 46. It's both, it's both triumphant And very sad at the same time. No one was able to answer him a word. You know, again, Jesus asks a question and they're just kind of there agape. Never thought about that before. How do you answer that question? They couldn't. You know, we say, yes, you know, Jesus silenced them. He won again. And not only that, it says from that day on, uh, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Everyone had been so defeated that they, they didn't challenge him anymore. At least not to his face, at least not with these kinds of questions. Because no one could win. How do you win an argument? Not that they wouldn't acknowledge this at that point anyway. How do you win an argument with God? Job found that rather difficult. Uh, these who challenged Jesus found that rather difficult, that at every turn, Jesus had them defeated. And in fact, even as this is playing out, that verse is being fulfilled. His enemies are being put under his feet. The, the quotation, the very dialogue itself is an instance of that verse being fulfilled. But it's also very sad. You realize this is the last conversation Jesus has directly with the Pharisees before his crucifixion. Jesus wasn't saying this to win an argument. Jesus was saying this to get them to think about the Messiah and possibly to recognize in Jesus that 
Messiah. This was a conversation of grace. One last time before he went to the cross. What is your response to Jesus? Do you recognize the importance of the question? Do you recognize the inadequacy of so many people's answers to that question? Maybe yours. That Jesus is far grander, far greater, far more terrifying than many people imagine. That the response is not to be silent, to say, okay, you won, yeah, yeah, Jesus is a great man. The biblical response is then to acknowledge that in your heart, to bow before him in your heart, to trust in him as the Messiah, as the Savior whom the Father has sent for the salvation of all who would believe in him. To reconcile us to that God, the one true and living God we were made to know. Yes, Jesus wants you to acknowledge him, but he wants you to submit to him, to follow him, to become his disciple, to become one of his people, to be a voluntary conquest in his army, in his people. What is your response? What do you think about the Christ? Well, there is one Pharisee, at least, who came up with the right answer. Took a little while. He may have been present here. We don't know. But we do find over in Romans 1 the answer to the question Jesus asked. If David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? We have the answer in the first few verses of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. With that Pharisee, Saul of Tarsus, known better to us as Paul the Apostle, wrote these words. Paul, a servant of the Messiah, Jesus, Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. He is the son of David, but he's also the son of God. And he's not just David's Lord, he's our Lord. Through whom we, all the other apostles, have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you, including you, who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that Paul so beautifully and magnificently answers that question Jesus asked. That David can call him Lord, because he is Lord. He is the Son of God. Not just the Son of David, not just the Son of Man, but the Son of God. Father, I pray that we would have an increasingly biblical understanding of Jesus in our hearts and understanding him to believe in him and follow him unto everlasting life. We pray it in his name. Amen.